Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Please join me in welcoming Ambassador Barack. Thank you very much, Ken. And let me just do a little bit of magic trick. Yeah, I learned that long, uh, many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first, uh, I want to thank the World Affairs Council for organizing this uh, lunch. It's, it's great to see so many uh, friends and, and, and partners uh, in this room. And, and uh, also, I want to introduce my wife, uh, Rosa. Uh, please get up once more time. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm pleased to announce that today is our anniversary. <laughs> Actually, I trick you because in our marriage, every day is an anniversary. <laughs> it's, it's great to be here in Dallas. And like I said uh, in the reception earlier, uh, there's so many friendly people. It's one of the friendliest states in the United States. Uh, and at first, before I came here, I thought the reason why everyone is friendly is because everyone's carrying a gun. <laughs> I would be friendly to a people who carry guns. But apparently, everyone's friendly because everyone is friendly. Uh, and it's part of your DNA, it's part of your culture, uh, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's always uh, a pleasure uh, to be uh, in, 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 in Dallas. Uh, I came here about two and a half years ago. Uh, I'm completing my third year as ambassador, and uh, I did my high school here. I studied at McLean High School in Virginia. Uh, great time. It was uh, I studied there from 1979 to 81, and and I miss it. You know, especially miss my uh, I had my own bully. <laughs> so, and ever since becoming ambassador, I've been back to McLean to every gas station, hoping to find him. <laughs> to, Actually, correction, hoping to find her. So. <laughs> uh, I, I've been, uh, I just arrived here from Washington, D.C., and before that, we just concluded a very robust uh, U.S. Indonesia security dialogue uh, in, in, in Jakarta. And everyone in Jakarta asked me this one question. What is sequestration? <laughs> so uh, it's tough for me to explain. And to be honest, before I came to the United States, uh, it's not a term that I used to hear uh, very often. But uh, uh, that's uh, part of the dialogue was explaining what that is uh, to my uh, Indonesian uh, f uh, friends. But look, uh, I, I'm very happy to be here. Today I want to talk about Indonesia. Um, and I want to talk also about how Indonesia uh, 
is playing a role in, in the region and how that connects to America's rebalancing or pivot uh, towards Asia. But first, let me talk about uh, Indonesia. Indonesia, uh, let me give you the uh, assets that we have. Uh, uh, Indonesia, for those who are wondering how Indonesia is relevant, uh, Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world. We are quarter billion people. Uh, we are, I think, the next largest country after the United States. Uh, we are the third largest democracy in the world. We are the next largest democracy after the United States uh, in, in the world. We are also the country with the largest Muslim population. There are more Muslims in Indonesia than in, in the entire Middle East. And Indonesia's Muslims are very unique because it's a very moderate and tolerant uh, Islam that uh, we embrace. Uh, it would surprise you, for example, that in Indonesia, uh, we have a national holiday uh, for Christmas and Easter. Uh, why? Because Christianity is a state religion in Indonesia, a country with the largest Muslim population. It will surprise you that in Indonesia, there are more churches, there are more churches in Indonesia than in Great Britain or than in Germany. There are 64,000 uh, churches in uh, Indonesia. I think in Great Britain is about 54, and Germany is run uh, that number. Right. So uh, it is a uh, a country that is built on the foundations of uh, diversity and pluralism. Uh, that is at the soul of uh, Indonesian nationhood. Multiculturalism is very much what we are all about. Right? So uh, Indonesia prides itself on its model of uni unity in uh, diversity. Indonesia is also the largest economy in Southeast Asia and we have the largest middle class in Southeast Asia. And it will surprise you, uh, as it did me last year, that uh, we are the second highest growing country in Asia after China uh, last year. So we grew even higher than India. We grew at about 6.3% uh, last year, and we expect this trajectory upward to uh, continue. Uh, we also have developed a new uh, mindset about how we see ourselves and our place in the world. Uh, in the past, uh, when I studied in college, my professors used to refer to Indonesia as a third world country. You know, and I didn't like that very much because it's as if you're on a train, there's a first class passenger, there's a second class passenger, and there's a third class passenger, and we were third class passenger. So we used that term, but we were never really comfortable uh, about it, and we haven't used that term anymore. Now we use the term emerging economy, uh, which is much more respectable and much more reflects what Indonesia uh, is all about. Uh, Indonesia is now also a member of the G20, uh, just like uh, the United States, which means that uh, unlike in the past where we see the G7 uh, having this exclusive group between America, Europe, and Japan making economic decisions for the world, now Indonesia is inside part of the larger group uh, of uh, uh, emerging economies and developed countries making uh, or shaping international economic decision uh, making. Uh, Indonesia also has uh, this distinction of what American embassy, the US embassy in Jakarta calls uh, environmental superpower uh, because uh, we have tremendous amount of uh, biodiversity at sea. Uh, we have what is called the Amazons of the sea in our coral triangle uh, in, in our oceans. Uh, and also we have uh, one of the largest tracts of tropical rainforest 
in 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 the world. Uh, so. Um, uh, the, the air that we're breathing now, actually, a lot of it comes from Indonesia, free of charge. <laughs> so, so that's the significance uh, uh, of uh, Indonesia, uh, and and uh, we built our international engagement based on these uh, these assets. Uh, but one of the most important story about Indonesia is how we have evolved into the third largest democracy. Not just any democracy, but a functioning uh, democracy. Uh, we, are the, we were the last country to join the third wave of democratic transitions in the 20th century. Uh, we became a democracy in 1999 when we had our first elections after decades of uh, authoritarian uh, rule. Um, and I would like to think that uh, with what is going on in the Arab Spring countries now, that Indonesia uh, offers very uh, a lot of useful lessons. Uh, I say to my counterparts from the Middle East that uh, I hope Arab Spring can become Indonesian summer, uh, because a lot of things that are happening in in the Middle East now is something that we have experienced uh, before. But what we did uh, in our democratic transitions in the last 12 years or so is that we have broken a lot of myths about democracy, uh, and I should tell you that. Uh, the reason why we took so long to become a democracy, three decades or no, five decades or more, uh, is because there were a lot of myths about democracy that scared us, right? Uh, it scared me. Uh, you know, uh, I wanted the best for my country. I was young, but uh, I was told that there are a lot of things that we did not want uh, by going into a democratic uh, country. And uh, fortunately, in the last 12 years, we have broken these myths. Uh, what are these myths? Uh, let me go through them. Uh, very quickly. One is the myth that democracy and development are mutually exclusive, that they can't go together. You know, in the Asia, when I was a student, they said that you can't have both. You can, you can either have a lot of democracy, but no economic growth, or a lot of economic growth and suppress freedom, little democracy. And this is what the debate in Asian values was all about. And uh, uh, this is the reason why many Asian countries suppress political freedom and have little democracy because they're justified by saying we needed that in order to achieve high economic growth, which is what happened in Indonesia. Uh, and throughout Asia, there was a time when Japan was the only uh, democratic country uh, and Japan felt alone, as uh, Prime Minister Nakasone used to say, because if they look around the region, there were only very, very few democracies uh, other than uh, Japan. But we proved that wrong, because we have proof after only about three or four years, Indonesia has a very robust democracy with periodic elections, and at the same time, one of the highest growth economy among the G20s and in Asia. So we got both democracy and development together, and we did not have to choose, and we broke that myth. The second myth was democracy, Islam, and modernity cannot go together. We broke that, right? Uh, I admit, in 1999, when we had our first elections, I was a bit worried, you know? Uh, well, now that we had a lot of Islamic parties, dozens of, of them, before they had only one Islamic party. Uh, and where is this going? Is Indonesia going to be an Islamic state, right? But after three elections, 1999, 2004, and 2009, the Islamic parties together cannot uh, gather more than 15% of the national votes. Right? And in fact, what has happened is Islamic parties in Indonesia has become the most vocal proponent of democracy, 
right? Uh, and this is one of the, you know, the best surprise about Indonesia's democratic development. So we have achieved a condition whereby democracy has grown. Islamic parties have grown, but they have become very staunch proponents of democracy and modernity uh, as well. And the surprising thing is all this happened without violence, without bloodshed, without much soul-searching debate. Now, why is this important? It's important because when I look, uh, when I went to the Middle East, it opened my eyes. Uh, I went to my first Middle Eastern trip uh, in 2005, and I saw very little countries had what was called three-in-one. Three-in-one was this democracy, Islam, and modernity. Uh, what countries were Islamic in the Middle East? Almost all of them. Yeah? So that's one. Everybody had it. But when you ask what countries were Islamic and modern, right, then the numbers go down by half or even more. But when you ask in 2005 what countries were Islamic, modern, and democratic, it went down almost down to zero, right? Uh, and I can't uh, really explain why it was so hard uh, uh, in the Middle East, but in Indonesia, all this were achieved effortlessly without much soul-searching debate. So we proved that it can be done in Indonesia, the country with the largest Muslim population. The third myth that we broke was democracy would break up the country. And uh, this is what they said to us uh, in government. And you know, look, look at Soviet Union. Uh, look at uh, Yugoslavia. The moment they opened up, the country broke apart like into pieces. And they said that Indonesia would be the next Balkan. Right? Uh, it scared us. Right? Uh, but what happened was completely the opposite. Uh, after we became a democracy, yes, Timor-Leste separated from Indonesia, but the rest of Indonesia got together and uh, achieved stronger national unity. We had a very strong separatist conflict in Aceh, brewing for th three decades. It was resolved uh, peacefully. And we have proved that democracy has made Indonesia even stronger. National unity uh, was achieved uh, at a higher level. The fourth myth was this. They said, we can't become a democracy because we didn't have a middle class. Right? Look at America. America is a middle class democracy. You need a middle class to grow a democracy. Yeah. Textbooks, yes, probably true. But reality, no. We proved that even with the absence of a large middle class in 1999, right, we could grow democracy. In fact, even people in the rural village, the poor people, the farmers, the people with the economically, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, weak, were the strongest proponent of uh, democracy. Because this is a time when they vote, they, act they actually feel powerful. They actually feel that they have ownership of the system and of uh, the future. So we prove, we, although now we have the largest middle class in Southeast Asia, but when we, when we began our democratic transitions, we proved that the presence of a large middle class was not necessary to grow uh, uh, a democracy. And uh, we also prove that we can achieve both democracy and security. Uh, we, when we began our democratic transition, uh, this was around 2001, things began to change after 9-11. Right? There was a lot of debate in Indonesia. Look, we got to pull back on human rights. We got to pull back on freedom. We got to pull back on democracy. Because Indonesia, we had our own terrorist uh, attacks in 2002 and 2003, and we had this small groups of very radical uh, people who wanted to create Islamic State and so on and so on. It was very difficult political debate in Indonesia, but we came with the firm decision that our democracy cannot be compromised. There was no uh, uh, restrictions on political freedoms. If we were to suffer a little bit because of it, 
we will take that because uh, if you start compromising on our democracy and it's a young thing, then uh, the, the, the impact for the long term uh, would be greater. So what we did was we did not compromise and as a result now Indonesia has a very strong democracy and has one of the strongest records of counter-terrorism uh, and, and, uh, and, and strong uh, conditions of uh, national security. So these are the things, these are the myths that we broke uh, in Indonesia. Uh, through our democratic uh, transitions. And I think Indonesia's experiment is quite important because, uh, look, uh, Indonesia is one of the most multi-ethnic, uh, one of the most diverse multi-ethnic nations in the world. You know, we have hundreds of ethnic groups. We have, uh, like America, you know, uh, uh, brown people, white people, uh, yellow people, green people, pink people. You know. uh, we have five major religions, state religions uh, in Indonesia. And Indonesia is a great experiment of how such a diverse country, ethnically and religiously, can work together in a non-Western world. In the Western world, you have America as, you, as the example. But in the non-Western world, you know, it's, it's been a tough fight. You know, uh, Malaysia broke up with uh, Malay. Malaysia broke up with Chinese Singapore. Right? Uh, in India, uh, after independence, uh, Pakistan broke away in a very violent uh, war. Uh, uh, and in parts of, 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 of you know the, the the developing world. Uh, these questions are always asked. Can diversity and pluralism work together in democracy in a non-Western world? And Indonesia's experiment has shown that we can. Uh, and uh, we don't say that uh, we've been all successful. We have a lot of challenges. Uh, but, uh, but so far, we've been quite blessed to be where we are uh, today. Now, Indonesia is the largest country in Southeast Asia. Uh, and I think this is relevant for the United States uh, as you now proceed with your pivot or rebalancing uh, policy. Uh, Indonesia welcomes the rebalancing of the United States to Asia. Uh, and we think that as the United States, uh, we think it's timely uh, for the United States to rebalance because the region itself has become very, very different, even to us uh, in Indonesia. Um, you know, even Asia is discovering Asia. You know, even Asia is discovering Asia. And we're talking about a region which has centuries of, of relationships. Uh, Indonesia has recently discovered China, right? Uh, what does that mean? Well, before that, uh, our trade with China was minimal, almost non-existent. And uh, the top three trading partner was United States, Japan, and Europe. Uh, and we have discovered China. Now our trade with China is $56 billion, twice our trade with the United States, right? Uh, a lot of our students are discovering India. Uh, a lot of our students are flocking, our tourists are flocking to Malaysia and Australia. Uh, a lot of Japanese companies and Japanese Indonesians, uh, uh, Indonesian companies are working together and so on and so on. But Asia is discovering uh, Asia. Uh, and I know the American friends who said to me, look, we never left Asia. We never left Asia. We've always been there. So uh, this, what is this rebalancing? You're right. But the fact is, Asia has gone much faster than before. Right? In the last 10 years or so, Asia has moved at a speed which it had never known uh, before, diplomatically and politically. Right? Uh, there's the number of democracies in Asia now is at its highest ever. Now, what does that mean? That means that 
America did not go slower, but Asia got a lot faster. And America, like the rest of Asia, need to readjust itself to that new speed and earn its place in that uh, new uh, Asia as well. You know, three decades ago, I would gladly say that America was the only game in town, right? Uh, I mean, you know, China was busy with China, yeah? Uh, uh, in, in the 70s, India was, was close. Uh, uh, it was very inward looking. And ASEAN, the, the uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, was not, uh, did not have a sense of regionalism the way that it has now, right? So America was really the only game in town. And Japan was quite reliant on, on, on the United States. But what is different now is that with the power shifts going on, there's a lot more game in town. A lot more game. China is game. Right? India is game, right? ASEAN is game, uh, now that ASEAN has become uh, a, a community. Uh, South Korea uh, is game, right? So there's a lot more game in town, and we need to get used to that. Uh, the countries in the region, the emerging powers, uh, the regional countries, and America also needs uh, to, uh, to get used to that. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, is needed in, in uh, Asia-Pacific uh, is what we call strategic trust, right? Uh, uh, this is our country scrambling to redefine their relations and, and build uh, a new architecture for Asia-Pacific. Uh, strategic trust is something that uh, remains a challenge. You have good relationships now. The American relationship with uh, Vietnam is one of the best transformational relationships and inspiring to us in the region. How can two countries that have very difficult past create this great uh, economic and military cooperation. That is something that we all see and we, we admire. Uh, but, you know, throughout the Asia-Pacific, there are still pockets of strategic mistrust, uh, you know, between the North and uh, South uh, Korea, uh, uh, between China and, and, and Japan, yeah, uh, India and Pakistan, you know, uh, and so on and so on. I think uh, the challenge in the near future is how do we overcome uh, the strategic, uh, uh, the question of strategic uh, mistrust and transform them into a question of uh, strategic uh, trust. Um, and one phenomenon that I see in Asia that is quite different and what I notice in my 24 years in, in, in foreign ministry is the, the phenomenon of new diplomatic partnerships. Um, I would argue that now uh, partnerships will be more important than alliances. I know. I don't know if. Uh, uh, hopefully, that's not too controversial a statement to me. But what I mean by this is, uh, is this: Indonesia, uh, six years ago, we did not have diplomatic partnership or strategic partnerships. But now we have about a dozen, including with all the major powers, including with the United States, including with China, including with Russia. Uh, including with Japan. And Indonesia is not the only one who are emerging with these strategic partnerships. Uh, our friends around the region, uh, China included, Korea included, India included, they all are developing their strategic partnerships. Uh, and by doing so, they're creating new strategic, economic, and diplomatic spaces around uh, the region. Uh, and this is important because Asia-Pacific used to be known as a condensed region. Uh, that There's not much that you do to expand uh, relations, but that has somehow been broken with the power shifts that are going on and the rise of emerging powers. And among these emerging powers, uh, you begin to see uh, new diplomatic uh, uh, 
partnerships. And this is why I'm glad that the U.S. rebalancing towards Asia-Pacific recognized uh, that uh, it's not just maintaining alliances. It's very important, of course, from your perspective to maintain alliances. But beyond that, with countries that you cannot have alliance with, such as Indonesia, we cannot have an alliance with any country, not United States, not China, and so on. But with countries that you can't have alliances, you have to uh, engage uh, into uh, new uh, diplomatic partnerships. So maybe that's uh, my, my cue. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, again, uh, I'm, I'm, I think the challenge for the United States is to reclaim the space uh, in Asia Pacific. Uh, and I say this is not exclusive to the United States. Indonesia also has to reclaim our space in the Asia Pacific. Uh, the most important geopolitical development in Southeast Asia, if you ask me, is uh, China's inroad in so, into Southeast Asia. And I don't mean it in a negative way, I mean it in, in a good way. You know, um, uh, China's investments, uh, China's economic uh, uh, activities, China's tourists, Chinese companies, Chinese trade with Southeast Asia has been very, very strong, right? And uh, this is why, uh, America was busy in Iraq and Afghanistan in the last decade or so, right? And this is why the rebalancing really makes sense, right? Uh, you need to reclaim that space. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I'll tell you as a closing that it's a good time for you to do so because your diplomatic and political capital in Indonesia and in Asia now is very high, right? Uh, you know, People like the United States. People like your your, your products. Yeah, uh, you know, people watch your TVs. Uh, although sometimes we get too much uh, the Kim Kardashian show. Uh, <laughs> too much of that. <laughs> but but your, your your diplomatic, political, and cultural capital is is, is quite high in Indonesia and in Asia Pacific. And and it's, it's time that uh, you harness it. And I'm so glad that Indonesia and the United States have a comprehensive partnership and we can work together to make uh, the region of Asia a better place and uh, the world uh, a more prosperous and uh, peaceful place. Thank you very much. We have a tradition at the World Affairs Council to have the first question, often asked by a student, and two of the students really focused on the current state of uh, for lack of a better word, used by the student, poverty. What is um, Indonesia doing to really encourage foreign direct investment? And one student asked particularly about some of the factories and the working conditions and, and the factories that are producing a lot of the products sold in this country. Yeah, okay. Um, well, foreign in direct investment in Indonesia is one of the drivers of uh, economic growth. Uh, the drivers of our economic growth uh, are domestic, uh, sorry, consumer spending. Uh, which is actually the, uh, the, the largest portion uh, of it, uh, and then trade, and then uh, foreign direct investment. Um, America's uh, uh, foreign in direct investment in Indonesia has uh, gone up to number three. Uh, so there's more U.S. investors going to Indonesia, but obviously not enough. Uh, we need more uh, U.S. investments. And we have come up with an investment law where we treat uh, U.S. Uh, sorry, where we treat foreign investors and domestic investors uh, with equal conditions. Uh, there's still some negative lists, some some areas uh, where you know uh, are not that open to to foreign participation, but this is something that is normal. What are those? Uh, uh, telecommunication. About yeah. Sorry. Yeah, gone for the fire, but some 
it's too close to some area of like a, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Chat Oh, yeah, many. Yeah. Uh, on fire for me. Okay. Closely. Okay. All right. And. Um, but uh, uh, foreign investment in Indonesia has doubled, right, in, in, in the last uh, few years or, or so. And uh, uh, well, the, the, good, the good story is uh, investors who spend their money in Indonesia usually make heaps of money. <laughs> That's my best selling point, you know, and you ask them, you know. And, uh, <laughs> good. Uh, conditions are, well, in Indonesia, in fact, uh, the challenge is, uh, uh, with our unions, because our union have become very, very strong in Indonesia. We, uh, we had uh, a period under President Megawati in 2001 when we, we came up with a very strong labor laws, and it's meant to protect uh, the labor and improve labor conditions. Uh, and at the moment, uh, uh, you know, now we're trying to uh, create better industrial relations uh, uh, in Indonesia to uh, based on this very, very strong labor uh, laws in Indonesia. The unions are very, very strong, uh, and, uh, and, and um, they, they ensure that uh, workers' rights are well protected uh, in Indonesia. Sometimes the investors complain about it, but, you know, uh, it's like that everywhere, I guess. Yeah. Let's take questions from our audience. We have microphones, and if I may ask you to wait until a microphone appears in front of you, please raise your hands and ask a question. And as we're waiting for that, you know, you talked a lot about partnerships, strategic dialogue, strategic partnerships, and as you said, you're mm -hmm. seeing a lot more of that. Is that also because of sort of a recognition that the United Nations is not very efficient or effective? Uh, no, I think we can do both. I think multilateralism for us uh, is uh, very important because uh, there are a number of issues that cannot be uh, cannot be uh, achieved uh, without strong multilateral cooperation, uh, climate change, for example. Uh, and for us, the WTO is very, very uh, important uh, to liberalize uh, uh, free trade uh, in, in, in the world. Uh, so for us, multilateralism is key to international cooperation, uh, but uh, uh, it, it's not a zero-sum game in terms of uh, the importance of bilateral uh, relations. Yeah. Uh, but we do recognize that at the moment uh, global issues are having a difficult uh, fight. Uh, and climate change uh, is very much a struggle. The world community cannot uh, come to a, a consensus. Uh, the uh, World Trade Organizations, the Doha Run is stuck, right? Uh, the nuclear non-proliferation uh, efforts is also stagnating. The one that we see the most progress is on the post-MDG, uh, Millennium Development Goals, uh, to define the direction of world development after 2015. So there's been some good progress there. But uh, on the overall, uh, we're seeing th uh, that uh, international efforts to address global issues are uh, really, really painfully slow. Yeah. As they are in the United States, some of our domestic issues. Yeah. Alan, you have a question. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much. I want to say you're a great representative of your of your country. I must say that. Um, with 86% Muslim population, and as you indicated, it, throughout the Middle East, you know the large the the uh, essentially Muslim populations have no democracies. How do you differentiate the type of Islam that your people? have in your country compared to that that is that makes the difference to allow you to have and continue a democracy? A very good question. Uh, I wish I can 
pin my finger down on a particular uh, answer, uh, but uh, look, I'll tell you what worries me, sir. Uh, what worries me now is uh, within the Islamic world, there is a fault line developing between the Sunnis and the Shiites. You know, uh, and it's worrying fault line because if you look at the Middle East, the conflicts in the Middle East, uh, internal and external conflicts, you see this uh, shaping up. Uh, and in Indonesia, and especially in, uh, and including in Southeast Asia, we don't see this fault line. Right? Uh, you see this particularly in the Middle East. And uh, in Southeast Asia, the brand of Islam is uh, very, uh, very modern, uh, moderate and, and tolerant. Uh, in Indonesia, it's like that. In Malaysia, it's like that. And for the benefit of our audience, yeah. Sunni Shia? <laughs> it's very difficult. Uh, that's going to be... <laughs> uh, it's, it's, okay, Shiite belief... Shiite is a very political uh, region. Uh, Shiite believe that uh, there's an imam called Imam Mahdi who disappeared from the world and one day he will uh, come down to earth. Uh, and the purpose of uh, Muslims around the world, particularly Shiites, is to prepare for his coming down uh, to earth. And so that makes the Shiites very political uh, in terms of their ambitions, uh, their worldview, and their rituals as well. Uh, whereas the Sunnis, we don't believe that. Yeah, uh, so Sunnis are much less political in that sense. Uh, my mom is very religious. My mom wears a veil, you know. And uh, in Indonesia, the more people, uh, the more and more people are becoming more re religious. But my mom would not vote for an Islamic party, right? So she separates her religiosity with her political uh, preference. And I think this is true for most of Indonesian electorates. And this is the reason of our. Uh, uh, ability to combine democracy, Islam, and, and modernity. And I think if if the same thing happens in the Middle East, I think they are going to be more or less in a good place as we are today. Do we have other questions here? Yes. Um, then we'll get to you next, Wayne. Good afternoon. Um, if you'd introduce yourself, Professor. <laughs> uh, I'm Annie Wong, uh, currently with the Southern Methodist University Tower Center. Also, I was with the Rand Corporation in Washington, D.C., so I had the pleasure of meeting you, Ambassador, a couple of years ago when you hosted a reception for the President of East Timor. I would. Yes. <laughs> and um, my question pertains to um, Indonesia's effort, as I understand, to increase its science and tech capacity. Um, as the economy grows, it is seeking to add more uh, value to its uh, products and uh, better quality of life for its people. Uh, I understand that Indonesia is in the process of considering the creation of an Indonesian a science foundation. Uh, in terms of what can the U.S. and Indonesia do cooperatively to uh, enhance S&T capacity in Indonesia, could you speak on that, please? Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, as we try to maintain our momentum, I think uh, our, our capacity to absorb uh, technology and develop knowledge economy is going to be increasingly important uh, to Indonesia. Um, and, uh, and this is one of my key challenges as ambassador uh, to the United States, that is to uh, intensify uh, university to university cooperation, uh, especially in uh, joint research projects. And this is why I have the um, educational attache uh, with us. Uh, I think one of the challenges that we face is that uh, we have to reverse the number of Indonesian students studying in America. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, and again, this goes back to the point about China and the United States. 20 years ago, there were 15,000 Indonesian students studying in the United States and zero in China. 
right? Because Indonesians don't speak Chinese, they, we don't know. We know MIT, we know Harvard, we know the University of uh, Texas, and so on. Uh, but we don't know much about university in China. And you know what it is now? Uh, number of Indonesian students in the United States, half to 7,500, and those studying in China, up to 8,000. Right? So there are more Indonesian students studying in China and the United States. Uh, and for me, that's a bit baffling because, look, when you talk about innovation, not, no one really beats the United States, you know, uh, Silicon Valley, MIT, uh, you know, and so on and so on. So uh, we're, we're really trying very hard to redouble uh, that number, and especially not just getting more students here, but uh, getting more innovators from Indonesia and the United States uh, to work uh, together and more research uh, projects, because uh, that's going to be important for our scientific development in the future. Wayne, let me give you the last word. <coughs> Um, Wayne Forrest of the American Indonesian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I guess if I have the last word, then I want to thank uh, Jim, your organization, for working with my organization to help put this together. And to have here today the representatives of your cultural institutions who are featuring Indonesia this week. And I had a hand in it because I lived in Indonesia, studied the music there. And it was, it's been an honor for me to bring here to Dallas uh, my teachers and some of the uh, masters that I got to know when I was a young guy out of college. Uh, and I've seen, you know, Dallas and, and Texas uh, through my organization have great uh, uh, connections to Indonesia. Well, those connections are somewhat challenged in some ways, I think, uh, by perhaps the democracy that uh, has emerged in Indonesia and more power centers and more decision making uh, perhaps making it a little more difficult for certain industries to go forward. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to end this, Dino, by asking you to kind of look to the future. Uh, the, the presidency of, of uh, SBY, Susilo Bamang Yudhoyono, is going to be ending next year. Uh, Indonesia will have another of its five-year presidential elections. Uh, looking at the last three and how, uh, three or four, that, and how they've gone, what do you see coming, what would you see coming down the road uh, in terms of, a, of an election? What changes might come as a result of it? Where, will the United States still have the same position vis-a-vis -vis Indonesia in, the, in a future administration? Good. Let's uh, hear what you have yeah, to say. I think that would be a good closing. I also want to thank uh, Wayne Ferris who helped organize uh, this event working with the uh, World Affairs Council. So thanks, uh, Wayne. Um, look, I've, I would like to believe, uh, and I hope I'm right in saying this, that uh, in Indonesia, democracy has achieved a point of no return, right? Uh, that there's no prospect of military coup in Indonesia. And you don't have to take my word for it, but you can ask people who are uh, you know, knowledgeable about Indonesia, I think they would say the same. Uh, it's impossible to have a military coup in Indonesia. The way it happened in, in Thailand, for example, which still uh, surprised us when, when, when that happened. So I think the good news is that in Indonesia, democracy is irreversible, right? Um, and uh, the second point is, uh, look, I, I, know, I know which direction Wayne is asking. You're asking, what if we elect the wrong leaders? Right? Uh, or what if, uh, you know, different kind of leaders that, uh, I mean, look at what happened in the Philippines. Uh, under Fidel Ramos, uh, they had high growth, great leader, uh, but then uh, he stepped down and uh, they had a president who went to jail and so on and so on. And then the Philippine economy went down 
and it took them a lot to recover after a while. So I think the point is validly made that leadership is very important to maintain the trajectory of growth of any nation, Indonesia, Brazil, Argentina, and the Philippines, Malaysia, and so on and so on. So that point is, is valid because next year we have a first presidential elections uh, where the president, president will step down. But I think the luxury of any Indonesian president uh, going too far off the rack is minimal. Uh, why? Because uh, civil society is so strong in Indonesia. We have full press freedom. Uh, some people in Indonesia say press freedom is more free than the United States. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but uh, yeah, you know that probably can. <laughs> yeah, it's true. There you go. Uh, and and uh, in Indonesia, uh, as happened in, there was President Abdurrahman Wahid uh, in 2002 who tried to disband parliament. Uh, and uh, just after three years of the first elections, and that ruined him uh, because uh, it's just impossible. Uh, once people tasted freedom and democracy, they're not going to give that up, right? So the next president will have a lot of leeways, a lot of imagination to recreate Indonesia and the future path, uh, but he or she uh, cannot go off the rack. Yeah, uh, he or she would have to maintain in a corridor of uh, uh, democratic accountability. And our history has taught us uh, if that person uh, uh, wastes the people's trust, uh, then the leader will have to account for it. Uh, uh, Indonesian history and electorate are not kind to leaders who disappoint them. And that's the way democracy should work. Your Excellency, it doesn't always happen where someone ends their talk here on an optimistic note. Thanks for doing it. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.